Chapters 46 and 47 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 46 The Mystic School. The revival of the principles of mysticism was a natural result of the decadent condition of philosophy during the 14th and 15th centuries. The heaping of subtlety on subtlety and the interminable controversies of the advocates of Thomism and Scotism bewildered and disgusted the serious seeker after spiritual light and drove him eventually to abandon all intellectual philosophy in favor of a life of contemplation and prayer. Many believed with the author of The Imitation of Christ that it is better to feel contrition than to know its definition, and that he is very learned indeed who does the will of God and renounces his own will. However, the condemnation of philosophy by the mystics reacted on the mystics themselves. Being unwilling to enter into the disputes of the schools, and obeying to the letter their resolve to abstain from philosophical speculation, they were unable to detect error when it was introduced into their own school. They judged all philosophy by the decadent systems which then flourished, and in their depreciation of purely rational speculation, they overlooked the fact that without the safeguard of systematic dogma, mysticism is unable to resist the inroads of pantheism and other errors. Thus it happened that the first mystics, who drew from the pure Christian sources, were soon followed by others who drew from sources tainted with the pantheism of the Averroists. We must distinguish, therefore, the orthodox mystics and the heterodox mystics. Orthodox Mystics John Rusbrook, 1293-1381, may be regarded as the founder of the orthodox mysticism of this period. After having been chaplain of St. Gudoli at Brussels, he retired to the convent of the Augustinians at Gronendale, where he gave himself to the study and practice of asceticism. Through Gerhard Grote, 1340-1384, the founder of the Brothers of the Common Life, the influence of Rusbrook reached the members of the community at Deventer, among whom was Thomas Hammerken, or Akempis, 1380-1471, the author of The Imitation of Christ. Gerson Life The most influential of the orthodox mystics of the 14th and 15th centuries was John Gerson, Doctor Christianissimus. He was born at Gerson in the Diocese of Reims about the year 1364. After having studied under Peter Dailly in the Faculty of Arts at Paris, he entered the Department of Theology and in 1395 became Chancellor of the University. In 1397 he went to Bruges, where he made the acquaintance of the Flemish exponents of mysticism. In 1401 he returned to Paris, but about the year 1419 was obliged to retire from the University for having advocated the cause of the opponents of papal authority. He entered the Monastery of the Celestines at Lyon, and there devoted himself to prayer and study. He died in the year 1429. His works, which were published in 1483, 
include De Theologia Mystica Speculativa, De Theologia Mystica Practica, De Elucidazione Scolastica Mystica Theologiae, and many other treatises on philosophy, theology, and canon law. Doctrines Gerson was opposed equally to the formalism of the Scotists and to the terminism of the alchemists. Indeed, he was opposed to all philosophy except insofar as philosophy is seasoned with piety. In a sermon, De Omnibus Sanctis, he condemns those self-dubbed philosophers who separate philosophy from the practice of religion. Qui se dici philosophos volunt et non sunt, quoniam dum a religione se cerne reputant philosophiam, utramque perdunt. In the treatise De Mystica Theologia Speculativa, he describes contemplative ecstasy after the manner and almost in the words of his favorite author, Saint Bonaventure. Est igitur ecstasis raptus mentis cum cessatione omnium operationum in inferioribus potensis. Denis the Cartusian Life Denis the Cartusian, Doctor Ecstaticus, was born at Rickel, in the Belgian province of Limburg in 1402. After having obtained the degree of Master of Arts at Cologne, he entered the Cartusian monastery at Ruermonde. He died in 1471. A complete edition of the works of the Cartusian is being published by the monks of Notre-Dame-des-Prés. The 18th volume appeared in 1899. Doctrines Dennis carefully avoids entering into the subtleties of the controversies which were agitating the schools of his day. Impertinentes subtilitates vitare propono. In the main, his system of philosophy and theology is Thomistic. He considers, however, all speculative knowledge to be merely an introduction to the interior life of contemplation and ecstasy. In the mystic elements of his system, he draws largely from the pseudo-Dionysius. Heterodox Mystics The Averroism which prevailed during the 14th and 15th centuries, whether openly professed, as it was by John of Gent, or John of Jean Dain, erroneously called John of Ghent, or taught more covertly, as it was in different forms by John de Mercourt and Guido of Medonta, took the form of an anti-scholastic movement tending towards a revival of the pantheism of the 12th century. A similar tendency towards pantheism led some of the mystics of this time to maintain the identity of the creature with the creator in the act of contemplative ecstasy, a doctrine which was repudiated by orthodox mystics. Some of the first heterodox mystics, such as Eckhart, show little or no trace of averroistic influence. It was on the societies or brotherhoods of mystics that the averroists brought their pantheistic doctrines to bear, thus widening the gulf between true and false mysticism. Eckhart Master Eckhart, or Eckhart, was born in the year 1260. He studied first at Cologne and afterwards at Paris. He belonged to the order of St. Dominic. In 1326, the Archbishop of Cologne instituted proceedings against Eckhart, who was then teaching in the convent of his order at Cologne. 
Eckhart repelled the charge of heresy and in 1327 appealed to the Holy See. He died in 1327. In 1329, 28 propositions taken from his writings were condemned by John XXII. Doctrines In his Latin work entitled Opus Tripartitum and in his sermons, written German, Eckhart advocated a system of mysticism in which he maintained the disappearance of all distinction between the Creator and the creature in the act of contemplation. He taught that the supreme happiness of man consists in a deification by which man becomes one with God. Henry Suzo, died thirteen sixty six, and John Towler, twelve ninety to thirteen sixty one, who were influenced by Eckhart's mystic doctrines, prepared the way for the Protestant mysticism of Sebastian Frank, fifteen hundred to fifteen forty five, Valentin Weigel, fifteen thirty three to fifteen eighty eight, and Jakob Böhme, 1575-1624, which, together with the Kabbalistic mysticism of John Reuchlin, 1455-1522, flourished in the Renaissance period. Chapter 47 Nicholas of Autrecourt Life Nicholas of Autrecourt illustrates by his career, as well as by his doctrines, the deplorable condition into which Occamism and Averroism had plunged philosophical speculation about the middle of the 14th century. In 1340, while Nicholas was still a mere Bachelor of Theology at the University of Paris, he was cited together with six other students of theology to appear before Benedict XII to answer to the charge of disseminating erroneous doctrines. Six years later he was condemned and in 1347 he renounced his errors. Doctrines Arrault and the editors of the Cartularium publish a document in which is preserved a sample of the sophistical reasoning employed by Nicholas. The only principle which is immediately evident is the principle of contradiction. To this principle, therefore, every proposition must be reduced in order that its truth may be demonstrated. Now, it is evident that an identical proposition, such as A equals A, is the only proposition to which the principle of contradiction can be applied. It follows that identical propositions are the only propositions that can be proved to be true. The law of casualty, the existence of the external world, the existence of the faculties of the soul, cannot be demonstrated, because they cannot be reduced to the principle of contradiction. Not content with these conclusions, which are virtually a profession of phenomenalism, Nicholas of Autrecourt goes so far as to call into question the principle of contradiction itself, thus ending in absolute skepticism. Deus est, Deus non est, penetus idem significant, licet alio modo. Idem dixi in quadam disputatione, quod contradictoria ad invicem idem significant. He denies the existence of substantial changes, explaining that such changes take place by means of combinations of atoms, congregatio corporum atomalium naturalium. In his theological doctrines, Nicholas advocates the theological determinism, denial of free will on the part of God, which was formulated by Thomas Bradwardine in his celebrated treatise 
De Causa Dei Contra Pelagium, 1344. Historical Position The doctrine of theological determinism shows the influence of the ultra-realism of the Averroists, while the sophistical method employed by Nicolas of Autrecourt betrays the influence of the method, if not of the doctrines, of Occam. These two factors, Averroism and Occamism, brought about the degeneration of scholasticism even before the dawn of the modern era, and the appearance of the forces which caused the complete disintegration of the scholastic system. Retrospect It is not necessary to point out the signs of decay and dissolution which mark the fourth period in the history of scholasticism. The effort to simplify scholastic philosophy was no doubt intended as a reform. It aimed at correcting an evil which really existed. The process, however, of pruning the superabundant growth of philosophy was carried to the extent of cutting out the very core of scholasticism. Durandus, Aureolus, and Occam, by setting aside as useless the most essential elements of scholastic philosophy, did more harm to scholasticism than even the Averroists had done. For it was Occam and his followers who, by neglecting the serious study of the great masters of the school, contributed to bring about that profound ignorance of the real doctrines of scholasticism which, at the opening of the new era, rendered impossible the alliance of the schoolmen with the advocates of the new science. The Averroists wrought irreparable injury to scholasticism both directly and indirectly. Directly, by their doctrines of determinism and of the unity of the active intellect, as well as by their principle that what is true in theology may be false in philosophy. Indirectly, by their peculiar method, which was known as ipsedixitism. The Averroists outdid the Thomists and Scotists in their reverence for the word of the Master. They gloried in the title of Aristotle's monkey, or Averroes' monkey, and when the Renaissance came, and the antagonism between science and philosophy arose out of the misunderstandings of the philosophers and the scientists, the greatest source of misunderstanding was the failure of the scientists to distinguish between the method of the earlier schoolmen and that of the degenerate scholastics who had fallen into the ways of the Averroists and had begun to test all truth by an appeal to the authority of the master. Before we turn to the study of the modern era, it is necessary to give here a general idea of the character of scholastic philosophy. Character of Scholastic Philosophy Scholastic philosophy had its origin, as we have seen, in the foundation of the Carolingian schools, an event which was the beginning of an intellectual renaissance of Europe in no way inferior in importance to the humanistic renaissance of the 15th century. The philosophy of the schools resulted from an attempt to dispel the intellectual darkness of the age of barbarian rule, and throughout the course of its development it bore the mark of its origin. The schoolmen were the defenders of the rights of reason, and if mysticism retarded and rationalism compromised the scholastic movement, the success of mysticism and rationalism was merely temporary. Abelard and Gilbert de la Poré 
were succeeded by Alexander of Hales, Albert the Great, and St. Thomas of Aquin, who, while they avoided the errors into which their predecessors had fallen, adopted the idea of method for which their predecessors had contended, and succeeded in winning over even the most unyielding of the orthodox to a recognition of the just claims of human reason. The attitude of the great schoolman towards the rights of reason appears most strikingly in the scholastic use of dialectic as a means of arriving at a knowledge of natural truth and of obtaining a scientific, albeit an imperfect, grasp of the meaning of the mysteries of faith. The use of dialectic by the schoolman was determined by the conditions in which scholasticism developed. Until the end of the 12th century, the schoolman's knowledge of Greek philosophy was virtually limited to an acquaintance with Aristotle's logical treatises. When, however, Aristotle's metaphysical and psychological works were introduced into Christian Europe, the schoolman began to construct a system of speculation based on Aristotelian metaphysics and psychology. The problem of universals, which the preceding centuries had discussed from the dialectician's point of view, was now successfully solved by the application of the principles of Aristotle's psychology. The notions of substance, person, nature, accident, mode, potency, and act were developed with the aid of Aristotle's metaphysical doctrines, and a theory of knowledge was formulated from his principles of epistemology. Still, the adoption of Aristotelianism as the basis of a system of speculative thought and the application of Aristotelianism to a rational exposition of Christian dogma must not be taken as the essential trait of scholasticism. For scholastic philosophy was eclectic in the truest sense of the word. While preserving a correct idea of systematic cohesiveness, it admitted elements of truth from whatever source they were derived whether from Aristotle or from Plato, from the Stoics or from the Epicureans, from the writers of the Patristic Age, or from the Greek and Arabian commentators. The trait which even more than the use of dialectic or the adoption of Aristotelianism characterized the philosophy of the schools is the effort on the part of the schoolmen to unify philosophy and theology to discover and demonstrate the harmony of natural truth with truth of the supernatural order. This is the thought which inspired the first speculative attempts of the schoolmen, and which, after having manifested itself in so widely different forms in the philosophy of Erigena, of Abelard, and of St. Anselm, was finally crystallized in the principles in which St. Thomas enunciated his definition of the relations between reason and faith. The day has long gone by when a historian could, without fear of contradiction and protest, represent scholastic philosophy as the subjugation of reason to authority. It is now universally conceded that the phrase Ancilla Theologiae implied no servility on the part of philosophy, but rather the honorable service of carrying the torch by which the path of theology is lighted. Aho declares that one has but to look at the vast number of volumes which the schoolmen wrote to realize how much value they attached to philosophy and how inexorably they felt the need of exercising their reason. 
Indeed, it is only the most superficial student of history who fails to recognize in the Middle Ages a period of immense intellectual activity. And the more the philosophy of that period is studied, the deeper becomes the conviction that the schoolmen were far from failing to recognize the rights of human reason. If then scholastic philosophy effected the most perfect conciliation of reason with faith, we must not take it for granted that the conciliation was brought about at the cost of the independence of philosophy. The schoolmen were as far removed from fideism as they were from rationalism. They attached independent value to philosophy as well as to theology, while they contended that philosophy and theology can never contradict each other. In this way, and herein lies the philosophical significance of scholastic philosophy, the schoolmen established between the natural and the supernatural the relation which the Greeks had established between matter and spirit, the relation of distinction without opposition. This doctrine of the continuity and independence of the natural with respect to the supernatural order of truth is the core of scholasticism. It is by this that scholasticism is distinguished from Greek philosophy, of which the chief defect, as well as the paramount merit, was its complete naturalness. It is by this too that scholasticism is distinguished from the philosophy of the new era. Modern philosophy, post-reformation philosophy as it may be called, was born of the revolt of philosophy against theology, of reason against faith. It adopted at the very outset the averroistic principle that what is true in theology may be false in philosophy, a principle diametrically opposed to the thought which inspired scholasticism. Indeed, in the first great system which appeared in the modern era, not only is philosophy divorced from theology, but the mind is placed in complete antithesis to matter. For in Descartes' philosophy, the spirit of disintegration which characterizes the modern era is subversive not only of the work of the schoolmen, but also of the best achievements of Greek speculation. Scholasticism distinguishes without separating. Modern philosophy either fails altogether to distinguish, fideism, monism, or distinguishes and separates, rationalism, Cartesian spiritualism. It remains to point out the difference in character between scholastic philosophy and the philosophy of the patristic era. The fathers as well as the schoolmen taught, as indeed all Christian philosophers must teach, that revelation cannot contradict reason, nor reason revelation. But although the fathers employed reason in order to elucidate revelation, they did not carry the use of dialectic to the extent to which the schoolmen subsequently carried it. In ultimate resort, they insisted on the ascetical religious rather than on the logical quality of mind as a condition requisite for the attainment of higher knowledge. Moreover, the fathers were, with few exceptions, Platonists, while the schoolmen were practically all Aristotelians. Finally, while the fathers in conditions more or less unfavorable to constructive effort, effected a partial synthesis of the speculative elements of Christian thought. The schoolmen in a rejuvenated and completely Christianized Europe 
In an age in which every circumstance was favorable to synthetic speculation, completed the synthesis begun in the patristic age, and developed a philosophy which is as different from the philosophy of the patristic era as the Neo-Latin Europe of the 13th century is from the decadent Latin Europe of the 5th. End of chapters 46 and 47